Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. For this episode, I sat down with Stacy Taves, husband, father, humanitarian, ecological steward, and my friend. Stacy is undoubtedly one of the greatest humans I know, and I don't make that statement without considerable thought. He is kind, generous, passionate, intelligent, talented, and a person who makes me better just by being in his company. Stacy is co-founder of Level Ground Trading, a Victoria-based company engaged directly with small-scale farmer groups in eight countries. Annually, they purchase the harvest of more than 5,000 organic family farms. Level Ground sources everything from coffee and tea to dried fruit, cane sugar, and spices. The 23-year-old company emphasizes bright futures for farmers, sustainability in business, and being the coffee that connects you. We explore his company ethos and Stacy's decades-long journey in educating about beyond fair trade practices. Stacy and his team literally travel the world meeting their growers and directly contributing to their communities, not only by buying their crops, but also by providing education and healthcare where it is needed most. We discuss entrepreneurial disappointments, such as lackluster 100% compostable packaging and the frustration of not being able to change how people think about global staples such as rice and successes such as coffee roasting innovations and their new state-of-the-art facility. We also look beyond level ground into Stacy's personal life and pervasive passion for sustainability. Through his small-scale family farm in Brentwood Bay, BC and his YouTube channel, Sustainable Stace, he is educating people about growing their own organic food. Stacy and his wife, Lori, have four children, three of whom were adopted from Haiti. We talk about how adoption and fatherhood have impacted Stacy and helped him to learn to calibrate his intensity. And we also briefly talk about Stacy's love for cycling and running, and now his new passion of longbow archery. Last year, Stacy joined me on a retreat where we made our own longbows out of Pacific U, and we regularly shoot together. I hope you enjoy this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio as much as I enjoyed recording it. If Stacy does not inspire you to cultivate the best version of you, then I missed my interviewing target. Stacy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Todd. It's good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you. You are rapidly becoming one of my favorite people. Actually, I should say you have become one of my favorite people. And we go back quite a ways as I've been thinking about it. I think we first met probably 10 years ago when mm-hmm. I interviewed you for an event at Pacific Rim College. And I was very impressed then with what uh, you had to say and, and how you presented it. So I'm really excited to have you back on the show today. As of late, we've been spending a fair bit of time together. We found some mutual pursuits. And uh, I, I feel that we're going to have a great conversation today. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. yeah well, let's, let's just jump in. You are the founder, co-founder of level ground trading correct yeah why don't you tell us a bit about that um it's a really neat journey um 
people's main question once they visit our facility and see what we're up to, they say, did you ever envision it being like this? No, not at all. So don't pretend I'm this far-seeing, into-the-future guy. Stuff happened, and it's been awesome for the most part. Um, our company started in 97, so as of now, we're into our 23rd year of business. And our focus has been to alleviate poverty in... Um, Communities that have small-scale farmers who grow products. We focused mostly on coffee, but a few other things as well, like tea and spices, dried fruit and sugar. And we've had a few products that we've offered for up to five, six years that we've pulled that didn't work out. So not everything's been wildly successful by any stretch. But the journey that got me to starting Level Ground was really fun. <laughs> I, Before you go on the journey, can you yeah. give us a bit of a an umbrella view, sure. an overview of what Level Ground trading is? Yeah. Um, if we were like trying to fill out some form for an industry publication, we'd say we are an importer, roaster, and wholesale of specialty coffee. That's primarily what we do is we import and roast coffee. We're based on the Saanich Peninsula just out of Victoria. Uh, we've been in five different locations over our 23-year history, and we started out with one trade relationship in Colombia. And a lot of the thoughts that we were putting out there to market and put out as our unique selling points weren't really recognized in the market. You know, it's sustainably grown. Um, we're paying farmers fairly, we're importing it directly without brokers, we're trying to build a local economy and tell the story of the farming community so that a customer, when they buy it, is directly seeing positive impact socially, environmentally, in a community with an everyday product that suddenly has this heartfelt turn on it. So rather than globalization, it kind of becomes a push for humanization. Um, so that's how we started out with, um, with specialty coffee from Colombia. We now have coffee from a few other South American countries like Peru and Bolivia. We buy coffee also out of Tanzania, Ethiopia, and most storied DR Congo, where there's a lot going on that usually only makes the news if it's bad. Um, so I'm really looking forward to being there in spring and visiting farmers and seeing what's going on in DR Congo. We have tea from India, um, from the state of Assam. My wife and I are going to be there in a few weeks' time visiting some of the small-scale organic gardens we buy from, and then spices from uh, Sri Lanka. We have this really cool business that we started that we source from now um, in Colombia that does dried fruit, working with this notion that the magic fruit that we all love, mangoes, only are ripe for about two months of the year. There's so many of them that the price is deflated and farmers don't have much of a reason to grow them because everyone's got them. And then when they're not available, they're absolutely not available. So we set up a dried fruit business in 2002 that now through the chain of supply in Colombia employs 1,500 people. We've been able to organic certify over 200 hectares of land in small group associations growing bananas, dragon fruit, golden berry, uh, papaya, coconut, mango, and then this organic certified, HACCP certified facility that's employing people <clears throat> who are taking fresh same-day harvested fruit, slicing and uh, drying it. And then it goes from something that would have rotted in a week to something that's basically uh, shelf-stable for two years. So that's now when we get a full container of that coming into our facility, it's equal to five containers of fresh fruit, but there's no energy being thrown at it to hold it or to store it. And uh, it's, it's harvested the day that it's most nutritionally optimal. So it's been a really cool story of, of developing an industry that didn't exist. There's four kind of copycat businesses in Colombia following that dried fruit model. There's a lot of domestic growth in that model because now they can all harvest mango and, and create something that's got value to it. How did the name Level Ground Trading come to be? Well, there's a couple rationales behind level ground. I think the the simple, most entry-level way of looking at the term level ground is um, a lot of approaches to 
people of wealthier societies like ours working in or partnering in communities where people are less wealthy, economically speaking, is that there's an imbalanced or uneven playing field. So level ground was kind of that general notion that people are on the same level. There's no hand out, there's no hand up. You're level, you're equal. I have personal Christian faith convictions, so I have another story that I'd lay on that, I guess, that relates to just this notion of taking out the obstacles, and a lot of us have obstacles about why we would see God as being loving and kind. And I think that when we level the ground, we make it much more accessible to understand our Creator as one who truly loves us and cares for us. And I think that in business, showing compassion and human kindness is one of the best ways to show we're made in the image of a loving God. Levels the ground. How did you get to this point today with your thriving business? Oh, man. Well, we were starting out our family as a couple um, at the same time that we were starting out Level Ground. And we kind of had our very first conversation on our first date around this principle of responding to poverty with our lives, kind of as a calling. Um, So our first conversation on our first date was about adopting orphans rather than having birth kids. And my enthusiasm as a on your first date a first date yeah (laughs) good topic as you know Todd I tend to go right at it so (laughs) that's kind of where we were and my wife Lori's no different really she's an incredibly thoughtful person and very clear on what she wants and so we found very common ground on that point and so we were adopting our first son who's now 24 um, from Haiti at the same time that we were starting level ground so crazily enough we were we were importing Colombian coffee adopting a Haitian board orphan, and I was pastoring in a Chinese church all at the same time. (laughs) (laughs) How did it begin? What was the inspiration for Level Ground, or did did the coffee import start before you had an inspiration for it? The inspiration was to use a product like coffee as a mechanism to get people kind of awakened or increasingly aware to the challenges of global trade if we kept on doing it the way we had been doing it. Um, So Level Ground wasn't really about initially birthing great coffee. It was birthing great stories and coffee would be the vehicle to hopefully get people in North America understanding and caring about products that were produced at that time, I felt, by anonymous farmers. We wanted to kind of put real names and faces, which why our packaging always has names and faces on it of real people who produce. So our, our then business partner, Colombian guy, uh, when I met him and introduced myself and told him what we were keen to do at the sales, marketing, fundraising, and at this end, knowing he had a connection to farmers in Colombia, the idea was, oh, well, if he does the source and supply side with a farming community that his family grew up in, and we could raise the funds from friends and family who'd borrow money against their houses and trust us, we'd buy Colombian coffee and start selling it on story, local economy, sustainable agriculture, and fair trade, none of which were in the marketplace at the time. We couldn't email farming communities then, and there was no curbside recycling in Victoria. Cell phones weren't even common. So it was a It was a different time, it felt like. If you went into grocery stores, none of those values that are commonly part of coffee culture now were present on the shelves. It was all multinational brands that were roasted in the States probably months ago in metal tins, and the price of coffee was about a third of what it needed to be for it to be sustainably sourced from farming communities. How old were you at the time? Oh, that's good. I have no idea. Uh, (laughs) I'm 52 now or 23. I was like 28 maybe. Yeah, so I was in my late late 20s, becoming a dad and starting a company at the same time. Yeah. Our son was two when he arrived. So yeah, I was about 25 when he was born. What are some of those early 
business stories you have. We rented a facility downtown Victoria, and we were permitted to have it from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. And it was a five-pound roaster in a room that had no ventilation and no emissions control. And we'd take the orders that we'd received from our wholesale customers, which I mostly gained from talking in churches and schools. We promised them that we would take their $10 a pound, roast their coffee to order, and deliver it to their front step within the week. That, that was how polished our business model was. And my wife and I and our business partner would go into this borrowed place at night with a sack of coffee that we stored in his garage and we would roast five pound batches, which was a four liter ice cream pail was one batch. And coffee loses about 20% of its weight if you dark roast it. So five pounds in the roaster, four pounds out, and the smoke coming off would hit the ceiling, which wasn't very tall. And every roast, the smoke would come a little lower and closer to our faces. So by the time we were into our 10th roast, the whole room was smoked out. And we packaged just on a kitchen scale as our way mechanism and had a, a foot heat sealer. And so 100 pounds was like 25 roasts. That was all night working. We took turns sleeping on coffee sacks and roasting and filling packages. And then we'd fill those customers' orders the next day. So you do 100 pounds a day in the roastery. That was busy. Yeah, uh, yeah it was busy. Yeah, that was how, many, how many days a week? Oh, we would do as many orders as we've always and still roast as much as the previous day's orders. So we would try to have the customer pull the product through the system, keep it green and unroasted as long as possible. And uh, we would try to roast on a daily basis. I think our first year we did about $50,000 in sales. So that was that was what year one looked like in 97. Yeah. And what background, if any, did you have in roasting coffee? Uh, none. None at all. None of us did it. None of yeah. us had ever roasted coffee. Trial so by fire. We, we made all the mistakes. We would package it so fresh it was still warm, but then moisture would be coming off but couldn't leave in this heat-sealed package, so a customer would receive coffee that had been growing mold while it was in transit. <laughs> like we, we were delivering nasty ethical coffee at the start. Just because we were doing a bad job, the farmers had grown great coffee. We just didn't know the details yet. When did it start to get a little bigger than that? Oh, I think by the second year, we had quadrupled. We were into probably $200,000 in sales the second year. We had an amazing partner that took off with us. What was your facility then? Uh, We did that in different forms for a couple of years. First, with that little five-pounder we'd use at night. Then they started roasting for us. Then we urged them to buy a slightly bigger machine so that they could roast for us. And then we moved into our first own facility. It was like 800 square feet, not far from where you and I are sitting now, just on the peninsula. And we would store green coffee, roast, and run our office there. And my wife's in my office was an uncle and aunt's Westphalia van. We'd back up really close to the office window and pop it and then drag out a data cable and a power cord and run our laptops in this Westphalia. Imagine yellow and brown plaid with the top popped. And that that, that was our office for a couple of years, yeah. A true West Coast experience. A true West Coast experience, yeah. When or was there a moment when you realized that level ground... Was it named by this point in time? Yeah, yeah, right away. Was there a moment when you realized that it was something very special? I couldn't convince anybody it was really special, it felt. Um, the notions we were putting forward were so foreign that I actually, after a couple of years, was very disenfranchised. I was so discouraged. I felt that with the limited impact we were making, because our focus was education for students whose parents grew the coffee, and that was what we believed was what they really wanted, was education in their community. And I looked at the numbers of students getting education. I thought, ugh, I could have taken a part-time job, donated the money to charity, and educated Colombian kids. I didn't see the scalability of it at that point, and I didn't feel we were catching on, because people in grocery stores who would make buying decisions about what would come in or not come in, they heard 
me say fair trade and they thought I said free trade. They didn't understand about sustainable agriculture. They didn't see the value of supporting a local economy or a local business. So I felt like it was all falling flat. I was so discouraged, Todd, that I actually went to the board of our company and said, I'm actually going to stop doing sales completely. I was the only salesperson. I want to take a different approach. I want to use education and I want to never name our company in the education. So it's not going to be a veiled advertisement. It's going to be principle-based. It's a nonprofit society that I founded. Educating consumers for ethical choices was the goal. And I went into schools, usually through social studies teachers who'd let me come to a grade 10 class. That was my ideal demographic. Grade six to 16 year olds. I'd tell them about the values of what we were doing and how that type of values would drive a changing economy that would be better for everyone rather than only for a few. And that if they believed this, these would be questions they could ask in the marketplace. These would be ways they'd measure businesses that made a difference and they should go home and challenge their parents to be that type of consumer. And I did about 200 to 250 talks a year for 10 years in schools and universities across Canada uh, for no money. I just believed that if I got kids stirred up, they'd go home and tell their parents. The parents would go into the store that said no to me as a sales guy, and they'd actually phone me up and say, can we have your coffee? It fits our values. And that started to happen through education, not through sales. Did you see that shifting right away or did it take a while? It took years, but I saw it shifting better and feeling more compelling for me because at least students would resonate with it and they would get excited. They were idealistic enough to believe it was possible and more willing to embrace our values than their parents were. I knew it was a lost cause to talk to someone past age 30. They wouldn't buy in. And now it seems that this concept, maybe you've paved the way for it because you actually had to had to sell this niche that you were creating and educate people about it. And now, of course, it's fairly common knowledge. So thank you for, for doing that <laughs> yeah. groundwork, literally. What are some of the business strategies that you have in place that I imagine they all align with your your principles but what are some of the key things that that you do that other companies aren't doing Hmm. I can't be sure how other companies do what they do or don't but I can talk about the things that we've done that we have found compelling and one of the things we have found most compelling is visiting farmers Uh, Visiting farmers is the best way to be able to talk authentically to customers here about what the impact of trade can do. And the power of that only comes if you visit the same places over and over and over again, because you get to start with a baseline sense of where things are at and then see things improve. It's pretty interesting to see how much the world has shifted in terms of access to resources. I love the book Factfulness by Hans Rosling because it points out that the world's progressively getting better despite the fact that our teachers who may have a 30 to 50 year old outmoded perspective of the world may say otherwise, the world's consistently getting better in terms of many of the markers, whether it's vaccines, girls' access to education, decreasing violence, or higher levels of economic affluence. There's just general markers of things getting better, and there's lots of reasons why. And so when we can be part of what's improving. I would say rather than using the words that we historically have as a company, alleviating poverty, which kind of stages it negative sounding, I like positioning people for abundance where they can look towards a thriving future with hope that they didn't see themselves having that their kids will have. Um, So 
education in Colombia, 23 years doing that, has changed a lot of kids' lives. There's over 400 kids getting education this year directly because of the foundation we set up. There's been an incredible groundswell of students coming through school that wouldn't have got past high school, that are now into university, that are now leaders in their communities, accountants, engineers, agricultural technicians, all part of a trade relationship we set up in the 90s. What does that look like? How does that directly impact and help those people? I think it's options. Um, kids growing up in agri- agricultural communities, in coffee-growing communities in Colombia, would usually have walking access to primary education. The junior or the middle school would be out of reach walking-wise, which means you'd need to have a relative living there or a boarding house. And usually at that point, the coffee farming family, when we started our business, wasn't able to access that. So you'd top out at grade five or six, the school you could walk to. And you were done your education. So you're semi-literate and you'll continue farming and you won't have options. But a person who gets a chance at higher education and considering university as well, raised in a coffee community, has a host of options their parents didn't have. The coolest thing I've seen is that most of them have stayed geographically close to home, but they've added value into their community above and beyond what their parents started out doing. And so that they're veterinaries to the people who are farming or they're working as doctors in the community where their parents are farming. And there's all these new abilities that are brought in that aren't brought from outside the community, but they've been raised up within the community. And how did you bring the education options to them? Scholarships to kids in rural schools. Yeah. People on the ground who were looking at the actual kids who are financially in the most need, who could be um, joining a school if there was some funding. Sometimes it was a breakfast program, so kids would have nourishment when they started their day. Sometimes it's uh, hiring a woman who can sew uniforms that the kids meet the criteria of the school and show up in the right dress attire for school, whatever it is, customizing it, literally tailoring it to the kids' needs. And is that working in Colombia only? or you Yeah, and that's, that's another key thing is that we've tried to be thoughtful and custom to a community based on the conversation. So access to education is very much about a Colombian initiative that we've had going. Access to healthcare is far more what would be happening in Tanzania where we've been trading. One of the sticking points I have found is Ethiopia where we've traded for 12 years, and I've hinted at this with you a little bit before on the side. But 12 years in with over $2.5 million in trade into this community that's financially one of the poorest we buy from, still hearing the same stories of, in my mind, kind of being stuck where there's not clean water or there's deaths from malaria. And when I turned 50, I had a fundraiser and took this approach totally different than running a business and doing it in a for-profit model with $20,000 of donations We were able to see a group in that community drill three wells in the co-op area where we buy coffee from, and 10,000 people accessed clean water from that. So it seems at certain levels of economic need or lack of infrastructure, an injection of money for the common good can be better than or do more than what just money farmer to farmer does. So I'm trying to understand better how to address poverty issues and learn from others' best practices. What does that human impact mean to you? I'll know better in May because I'm going to visit that community again. Um, In any of the communities you worked with? I almost start to tear up right away, I'd say, because it feels pretty cool to be part of something. And I think just the opportunity to be part of something is an incredible privilege. I've kind of worked this last year, thanks to awesome people like you, to dial in a little better. What am I here for? And when I look at my identity and I look at my role, I've increasingly come down to... I'm wanting to educate and inspire people who feel impoverished spiritually or physically so that they can get to a place of abundance. And 
the fact that I can be part of some people at a birthday party and we can raise money and together we can see an organization that does great work drilling wells in Ethiopia partner up in the same community where we buy coffee and then see those people go through training on sanitation and hygiene and see 10,000 people access clean water and now more kids are in school and way less is happening that's harming people and way more possibilities unfold. It's just like, wow, I get to be part of that. That's just for me, super exciting. I'm inspired by getting to be part of that. What does a pre-level ground Stacy look like? <clears throat> a pre-level ground Stacy. You seem so refined in your vision and your mission, and it seems that you have been that way since the very beginning. Has that always been something you've carried with you? Um, I've always had a huge sense of responsibility, and I don't think that was put on to me. I think I've always had this incredible sense of, man, I'm fortunate. I have parents who love me deeply. There's never been a moment I've questioned how much they love me. That level of love has been manifest as support. We believe in you. We trust you. You have skills and abilities. We want to just support you in any way you can as you go forward. And I think that that gave me a huge sense of confidence. I also had a sense early on that I could get in front of a group of people and talk and it could have effect. I think by age 18, I'd figured that out. And so for me, I got excited to be in front of people if I was prepared to impart something that I'd been challenged by and share the challenge. And like, you know, right, being in front of a group, anything's only convicting and impactful if it's touched your life first. And so it's like, what can I learn from? What can I be curious about? What can be changing inside me so that I can share it with someone else and they can hopefully experience positive change as well? So I think, yeah, I've been pretty motivated early on, whether it was sports or friendships or life experiences to kind of have a big one, a big experience that I could share that would get someone else excited. Did you have any previous business ventures to this one? Uh, we're down to lemonade stands in elementary school. How'd that go? <laughs> it was pretty rock and it was a painted four by eight <laughs> sheet of plywood. <laughs> sure. You moved a lot of lemons that way. What business failures have you had? Oh, we tried really hard with a couple products from the Philippines. Heirloom rices. <clears throat> I got so and still can get so passionate about rice because rice is one of the staple foods of the world. It goes back millennia. There's like probably 5,000 documented strains of rice on the planet and more than half of them find their genetic home in the Philippines. And when I found out about the depth of genetic diversity and all the world research centers on rice are in the Philippines and I got to meet First Nations growers who were in places in some locations I visited, they said no North Americans or Europeans had visited before. And I got to see rices that were speckled like a Dalmatian dog, that were bright purple, that were all these different colors and different grain shapes. And I was like, how does the world not know about this? I was just beyond belief. This is the next thing. We're going to import container after container load of rice. And we're going to be evangelists for heirloom rice and about saving your seeds and how this is going to like redefine agriculture and get the story of fruit. And the rice terraces themselves are beautiful, beautiful. They call one that I visited the stairway to heaven. It looks like this giant creature built stairs out of a mythical world. And everyone's like, four meters high with rocks that were taken 2000 years ago to build retaining walls and then 
rice comes out of, or sorry, water comes in heavy rainfalls from a forest canopy at the top of the mountain and trickles down beautifully through all these terraces. And you see all this amazing diversity. I was like, this is nuts. I saw the connection between rice being well grown inland and the positive effect on the coral reef at the shore where the oceans are. Because when you've got the thousands of islands that the Philippines do, when they farm well inland, they preserve the diversity of the coral and the fish species at the shore. And many of the farmers hadn't made that connection because they'd never been to the seashore before. So I just felt there was a multitude of stories to tell. And we imported rice for a couple of years and it was frankly a dismal failure. People want a white flavorless item that's virtually free that they can drop their sauce on. And I just couldn't make rice sexy enough for people to buy it. <laughs> and so for me, it was super disheartening. I don't think you were passionate enough about it. <laughs> <laughs> I was making rice pudding out of three different heirloom rices using milk from my own cow and vanilla that I was importing from Uganda and cane sugar from from Colombia, And I was like, this is this perfect mix of three different imported products. And I'd use a duck egg for my ducks and milk for my cow. So it was like this perfect mix of local and global and everything was so beautiful. It's like, how can you not love this? But people wanted it for the price of white rice that's GMO. And I couldn't bridge that gap. The gap was too big. Your business has always been based on sustainability and even pushing the forefront of what sustainability is. Tell us a bit about your foray into compostable packaging. Hmm. It's been a hard one. Compostable packaging is something we've always been enthused about. And years before we started um, putting out a compostable package, we started, first of all, by reclaiming all of our empty packages in hopes we could find something to do with them. So at all the grocery stores, about 100, 150 of them that were close enough to drive to with our own vehicles, we would at each customer service desk have the permission of the store to have a, our box just for level ground empty coffee packages. People could drop them off there at the customer service desk and we'd bring them back to level ground. And my premise has been, if our name's on it, we should steward it, even if the local government or waste management can't. We found a woman who was a, an Iranian refugee, came to Victoria with four kids. She had uh, great... Um, capability with a sewing machine. We got her a commercial sewing machine and she started upcycling all these reclaimed packages, thousands and thousands of them. She turned into tote bags and shopping bags and grocery bags. And we'd use them for giveaways and we'd we'd sell them in health food and independent stores. And we got good traction on them, but we didn't make money on them, but it was one way. But the quest for the holy grail of compostable packaging was what we sought. So four years ago, we launched a Canadian-made 100% compostable coffee package made with 85% by weight FSC certified wood pulp. Even the valve for degassing was certified compostable. Even the tin tie to reclose it was certified biodegradable. Um, we were so excited. And we got a special machine that could take a roll stock of this Canadian made packaging and turn it into a package and print it bilingually with lot tracking codes and everything. And the whole process from paying farmers for their photos, outputting the data and the images and the, the design work and the machine was about a half million dollar experiment. Beautiful technology. And when the sales rep who'd sold us that packaging first came from their Ontario shop to visit, he was crying. Tears of joy. He says, I never thought I'd see a nationally ready, bilingual, fully compliant, compostable package like this is. We've done it. And our sales went from flat to declining with that product. 
compostable seemed to confuse people more than anything. And I decided we would have to do a bunch of experiments to see how to best market this and manage it. <clears throat> so I took a few different tacts. I had one of those companies that does like document shredding come and they have one of those big truck mounted shredders and we shredded 200,000 reclaimed compostable packages. I took 50,000 of them to our own or little organic family hobby farm, 50,000 one. I put them three different ways in pathways, in growing garden beds and in my compost bins. And I tried to mix them up, timestamp them and see what would happen and the rate of decomposition and composting. I took the 150,000 to a local farmer who cleans out local horse barns and he has this big scale composting operation where he's using a front end loader to turn these big windrows and he was growing um, barley for a local brewery. So it was gonna be a cool deal. None of the tests worked out really well. The stuff didn't break down very well. The compostable shreds after three years in my garden, some of them were still intact and pieces as long as my hand. Some of the valves that were certified compostable, fully intact with no degradation after three years out in the West Coast. All the test compost facilities that I took samples to, to see if they would trial, they said, ah, we won't take any more samples from you. They don't break down. And all the local government contracts were for food scraps only. So they wouldn't accept them at farms. They wouldn't accept them at composting facilities that had contracts. And uh, generally just frustrated. What accountability, if any, did the the companies that you bought the packaging from take in this? Well, they have standards that they would say that in 180 days under certain ideal conditions, temperatures and humidity levels, 98% of those shreds will break down to smaller than 0.2 mil. And it won't be biodegradable, just like disappearing plastic. It'll supposed to be compostable, which is supposed to mean it germinates seeds and it functions as soil. I wouldn't say they took responsibility. I would just say that generally the package simply didn't live up to what we'd hoped for. But most importantly, contracts for curbside composting won't accept anything but food scraps. They just see it as too slow to turn into compost. And I agree, it's too slow to turn into a sellable product that you can make money on as a business. And so really the only solution for our customers if they have a backyard composter and they can wait a couple years, which is very few of our customers. And so what we were stuck with is the way the industry was going with manufacturing didn't have a symmetrical industry with waste management to deal with it. So we've had to reposition. So half a million invested to set it up. What do you think the final toll was when it came to this project? We've lost market share for four or five years. While that package came out, which cost us quite a bit more than conventional packaging, two of the other big brands in fair trade organic coffee got bought by publicly traded companies. So in that process of time, they had a lot of funding and a lot of money behind them. They still get advertised as local companies because they roast in BC, but they're owned by foreign multinationals. And so the competition ramped up while our costs ramped up. So we lost market share. That's the biggest cost, far more than setting up the program for producing that. What does your market share look like today? It varies in communities and it lessens as we get farther from home. Because with all the values we might talk about with fair trade, sustainable, organic, smallholder produced coffee, locally roasted seems to float the boat more than anyone. So local to whoever they think is local seems to matter the most. So it depends a lot on your hustle of your sales team and what type of market share you get and your shelf positioning is how well you sell local in your community. So it's it's been pretty solid, but it's also been a flooded market, right? With a lot of companies coming in 
offering what a customer might see as the same, even when there might be more money from a level ground model going back to farmers, we can't assume that customers are doing the math on how much. If it says fair trade, how do you get beyond that? And what are you transitioning or have you transitioned into? Yeah, we're just moving right now to replace what was that compostable line for the last four years into a package that would be seen as mainstream. Um, so it's more conventional layers, which can go to waste to energy. So whereas recycling doesn't take compostable, uh, you don't want it in landfill, it doesn't work in commercial composting, waste to energy is the other place that most non-recyclable, non-compostable streams go to, and a compostable package isn't accepted in waste to energy. But waste to energy can be taken in BC and most provinces to any recycle depot. And there at least it'll be stewarded into a place where it's closed emission. They'll capture the energy from it in emissions and sell it back to the hydro company in that province. And so it has a better likelihood of being stewarded than currently a compostable package does in our economy. And what is this package specifically? Uh, it's going to be a smaller package than the one we've had in the market because we believe customers want a slightly smaller price point. It'll still have the names and colors of all the countries and the looks that we've been selling, so it should be easily recognized. We've updated the faces of farmers and the names on the fronts of the package. So it's kind of a refresh, not a total revolution on our packaging. And we're it's the same equipment that we purchased to make the package is used for this new substrate as well. So it isn't like it's lost money on the machines. It's just a new application of them. From your beginning days with your five-pound rented roaster, mm -hmm. what roasting innovations have you made and do you have in place today? Yeah, our biggest uh, success, and this has been really wonderful, has been in the new facility where we've been the last two years here on the peninsula. We partnered with a company out of Vancouver that specializes in heat recapture. And in roasting, there's quite a bit of temperature that's used for a short time. And our technology mimics hot, um, hot air popcorn popping. So think of it as just a really big facility for popping coffee seeds. And um, there's a moment in time in any coffee roasting process when just like popcorn pops, that's when the coffee cracks. And that's the moment when the volatile organic compounds come off of your roast. And that's when your potential emissions or pollution hits the atmosphere. So we've got a beautiful system and have had this in place for 20 years to burn off those emissions and destroy the VOCs. But the new patented material equipment we have in this facility captures the outgoing heat from that emissions destruction process and returns it to the start of the process. So we audited our final 12 months in our prior technology and our first 12 months with our new technology and it reduced our natural gas by 43%. So it's fully dealing with the pollution issue of VOCs being destroyed, but capturing back 43% of the natural gas that would have gone out of the stack. So at a, at a larger scale for roasting than most small-scale roasters, this is doing a lot responsibly that many roasters don't even address. We feel like we've done it the best the technology can currently offer. Your new facility is stunning. Tell us about the journey that you undertook to get there. Yeah, it's a really beautiful facility. It's about 20,000 square feet. Everybody who works for Level Ground works under that roof and everybody comes and goes smelling like beautiful coffee in that location. So we have about three dozen staff working there. Um, it's got a beautiful view of both sides of the peninsula. So we see ocean on both sides and the tasting room is designed for a great customer experience where people can come get a flight of coffees or just have a typical cafe experience with great baking and a, a good espresso-based drink or teas that we import. Um, the journey for that was really cool because we were 
in a leased facility for 10 years and we wanted to get out of that just like anybody renting who wants to own. We knew that we had to move towards that direction. It's really tough to find land zoned for this type of light industrial manufacturing, but we were able to do that. Found a great builder who was willing to build. Their caveat was that the building they wanted to build was going to be eight units for rent on three different levels. <laughs> so it's going to be one building with eight units strata and they were going to lease it out and each building because it's a slightly sloping property was going to be terraced up a bit. So I took them through our prior facility and said, this is what we do now. We love the location that you're looking at building for us, but we'd have to, because our forklifts don't do stairs, we'd have to flatten out the construction so that there's no tiers to the warehouse floors and you'd have to build it with higher walls and ceilings for our forklifts and racking. And then you'd have to not lease it to us. You'd have to sell it to us. And they said, well, that's not in our business plan. We're not looking at, at taking it that way. And so after I showed it to them, um, being a believer in miracles, I told them it was coming into Christmas. I said, we both need Christmas to think about it anyway. So I'll pray about it and you change your mind. And then phone me back in the new year and tell me you're willing to build to sell rather than build to lease. And they phoned back in the new year and said they would. <laughs> <laughs> so they built it on the right levels that our forklift didn't have to do any stair hopping. We were able to build much higher walls than we'd had before. So we could go four racks high and it really is way more efficient on space. It's tilt up concrete, really clean build beautiful to walk through and it's amazing now we have the produce of over 5,000 small-scale farmers coming through that one building every year so it's a great place to kind of be the nerve center how much volume of coffee do you sell a year our goal for 2020 is to move through about 35 shipping containers of coffee so that'll be maybe close to one and a half million pounds unroasted um and, and we equate very directly with the type of business and the type of buying we're doing that more volume means more farmers. So that's our total motivation to grow the business and build the brand is that more farmers are getting a sustainable livelihood growing this coffee when we're able to build out what we do. So 35 containers coming from six different countries. So the smallest producing countries for us, we'd be getting one or two containers from. A container is about 20,000 pounds. And uh, the biggest, sorry, 20 ton, 40,000 pounds. And then the biggest suppliers for us um, would be a couple different African countries like Tanzania and DR Congo. We're buying like six or seven containers in a year. And what is the growth that you're seeing? Our hope, we're not there yet, but our hope is that for the coming years, we're going to try to grow at 10 or 12% a year. And we want to be in five years, a $20 million company, 20 million in wholesale sales. What is the structure right now of your leadership in the com company and what is your role? <clears throat> the structure for the company, my wife's the CEO, her name is Lori, and Lori has created a really cool leadership team where there's an individual in charge of each area, whether it's IT, production, operations, sales, marketing, or finance. Um, those people are all incredibly good friends and work together well. Most of them have traveled to different countries together. All of them have university education and all of them have real world experience as well. Most of them have come up in the company with multiple roles. And so it's not like they got brought in from outside with a skill set. It's more like they developed within the company, developed in a few areas, and then we saw where a real strong spot was and they landed there and excelled. Each of them have team members that they're leading. And um, we work pretty hard together on how we set our goals and our key performance indicators so that I think they're mostly keeping each other accountable to those goals. Um, the coolest thing is having a team that comes together and we all have the same goal. That, that fixation on alleviating poverty or getting people see a brighter future and, and um, something of abundance in their future 
is very uh, <laughs> catalyzing. It gets everybody going, right? And so that's a really common desire to build the brand around and people show up at work excited. There is not this, I, I hear about people in other settings or other work environments struggling for a culture that draws people together. That's not a struggle at Level Ground. People are jacked to show up. <laughs> and what is your role? My role? Um, the title that I've given myself is Communications Catalyst. I like talking. Um, so whether it's with press or media about something that's a new initiative, a lot of tours, school groups, community groups, organizations that represent people of all ages. I think just yesterday I had people from Royal Roads University and from Camosun come through the building. We might have a seniors group and we might have a grade six class. So walking people through is the best way in an area where there's not much manufacturing to show people firsthand what we do and why we do it. I try to talk sustainable farming, healthy diet, uh, sustainable business practices, and how humanizing trade creates a better world for everyone, and get people looking at many different points of values alignment, hopefully f striking a chord with them that gets them to resonate with that. Um, so I've kind of initiated a lot of our environmental initiatives and stewardship goals, do a lot of the communication, and then I, I get to do a lot of the leadership in travel right now and partnership and measuring the social impact of what we're doing in the countries where we're working. So that's an ever-moving target to learn about. Your product is beautifully branded. How did that come about, the work that you put into marketing and branding, and, and what, what dividends have you seen that pay off? Well, for us, our main focus has been putting packages into grocery and health food stores and also partnering with fair trade stores. So as with many companies producing a food or consumable, the package look is really the essence of the brand connection with the prospective customer. It's got to look good on a shelf if people are going to reach for it, right? We have put a lot of time over the years, and I think we've had a consistent passion in our ownership group about putting out a beautiful-looking package. It's funny that back in the day it was shiny gold. We put adhesive labels on top, not environmentally friendly. That was just what was available, and it was done on our kitchen table at night after the workday, and you could eventually or potentially get, you know, a pet hair underneath that adhesive label or whatever else. There wasn't organic certification going on in our facility. So it was very much a startup done over the kitchen table and uh, gradually growing from there. And I'd say our biggest leaps forward have been when we've partnered with design agencies that are professionals at it. And uh, when we started to do some rebrands back about 10 years ago and we worked with a professional uh, design agency out of Vancouver, they really took us to another level. They won a lot of international awards submitting the work they had done with us. And we've taken some of their staff to Origins that they're actually visiting farmers, shaking hands, meeting students in schools who benefit from the trade, so that it's not about getting the right color and Pantone off the palette so much as getting the vibe and the ethos of what we're trying to accomplish. Because once you've eaten a meal with a farmer with your hands and met kids in a school and ridden a donkey, there's just something about the work you're going to do that's going to embrace more of what it is we're trying to resonate with, right? And that's really come through in the design. I think I told you before that when your product first started to come into my awareness, I did not think it was local because it was so well positioned and branded. And it was only after I, I looked into it that I realized mm -hmm. you were just down the street from us. And I think your branding has only gone up from there. Ah, oh, thanks, man. Yeah, I'm hoping it just keeps on going because that's such a huge part of doing well to get market reach. You've been doing this, working with Level Ground for almost half of your life. Yeah. What sort of personal sacrifices have you made along the way? 
I think in many ways I see it as the what I've received from it is definitely where my default goes to rather than the sacrifices. I'll try to come up with some things I sacrificed with. But really, we were getting ready to adopt our first, like I said, as we were starting the company and knowing there was probably going to be high demands on us as parents, I was looking to find a way where I could build my work schedule around my parenting commitments. I've always believed that the commitment to parenting and marriage was above any commitments to work or vocation. And so I wanted my work to flex with my parenting demands. And so I've seen this as a privilege for my wife and I to find an income in doing something we love and share a passion in while parenting and raising four kids. That's been the biggest part. So you know, we've gotten to, like we did this trade relationship one year with a bunch of indigenous farmers in the south of the Philippines. And I'd lived in the Philippines before, so it's really close to me. And we got to take all four of our kids on a trip and visit. And I remember waking up one morning and we'd all slept on the floor in this little hut. We're totally off the grid. And we're looking out over the vista at the top of this mountain with one of the tribal chiefs. And he's explaining to us hunting trips when he was a little boy with his grandfather down in the jungle. And my kids are sitting on each side of me hearing his stories. And I'm like, my work has brought me here. This is amazing. And and so I see it as just pure privilege. And now as our kids have gotten a little bit older, for the first time, my wife and I are going to get to travel without our kids to go visit producers this month, go to visit tea growers in India. It's always been a trip she's done without me where I stay home. But now that we can leave the kids mostly on their own and a little bit with the grandparents, more privileges. So I really see it as privilege coming from it far more than sacrifice. You have a European background, correct? Heritage? Yeah. How do you pronounce your last name? It's not as it looks. It's so yeah, it's spelled T O E W S. Maybe phonetically you'd come up with toes or something like that or toes. Um my funny story is that I was in the Philippines for a year volunteering and I was being introduced my first day there to the group I was going to volunteer with. And the people were pretty conversant with English. So when they said my first name Stacy, they laughed because that's a girl's name and they all knew it. And I've had to deal with that my whole life because no one's ever met a man named Stacy. It's always a woman. And then they said my last name and I said Toes, which was what I'd always said my whole life till that point when I was about 20. Toes. They burst out laughing. In Tagalog, the national language, they told me that meant sperm. so I immediately defaulted as of that moment and henceforth it's been 32 years since that woeful introduction to Taves which is the traditional pronunciation of my dad's last name and Taves is the traditional Mennonite low German pronunciation of Tovus which was you know the W's of V so that's you know in in places where there's Tisons and Friesens Taves are among them in in Canada be like Brandon or Steinbach or Kitchener or Abbotsford there the name Taves is obvious as a pronunciation but Elsewhere, it's not. It's a strange one. (laughs) (laughs) What does the relationship to your dad and your mom, how has that impacted you and what does it mean to you? My parents are people of incredible faith and resilience. Um, They've done incredible things. And I feel like when they got into their 60s, they kind of reinvented themselves. My parents had a pretty traditional relationship. They've been married. I haven't done the math on that, but I think they've been married 55 years. Um. I'm close. I talk with them almost every day and they live close by here in Victoria. They had a, have always had an incredible commitment to others and a willingness, I think, often to their own, at their own expense to give to others, to care for others and to love others right where they were at in ways that often was pretty hard on their relationship and even at times hard on us. I remember as a kid having a woman live in our family, in our home, who was a drug addict. 
and um, her life wasn't going super well and it had a very deep and lasting impact on our family and on my mom especially and I don't know what my parents would say in terms of looking back on that if they would do it again but for me it was always very clear they were there for other people so it was normal for me even as a 19 year old in college when I was living away from home in the dorms that if I would see a person drunk at night who was homeless and needed help I would ask them if they wanted help and if they did I'd bring them back to my dorm room and they'd pee on my couch and that was just a normal part of my life and so I've always, with my parents as an example, believed that uh, if there's a way that I can befriend someone and offer help, th that's what I'm going to do. Now that you're a father and have been for quite some time, what lessons have you learned about yourself through your children? Uh, and also, if you can speak a bit about the, what it's like raising adopted, adopted children. I'm really intense, and I think that's a bit overwhelming for kids and other people in general. As you know, one of the things I've worked on a lot in the last while is what I call calibrating my intensity. I'm often so excited about something I want to do or want to get going or want to keep going on that it's hard for me to slow down and read another person and go, where are you at? How are you feeling? And often my intensity can be pretty overwhelming for other people. And I think I've needed very much to learn that in the process of parenting. Our kids have come to us at different ages from different backgrounds, three of them born in Haiti and all from different birth families. And often there's a lot that's been hurt in their lives before we ever get to meet them. And being part of a very large adoptive network of families with African heritage kids, I've learned a lot. And I'm still learning an awful lot. It's probably been my biggest growth area, actually, is understanding trauma and experiences that people have had that have been very hurtful. And are there ways, kind of spiritual jujitsu-wise, where you can turn those hurtful experiences into helpful experiences, where they become your strong suit, your skill set, what you've learned the most from? And um, I think often I've tended towards like, why can't you just do it the way I did it? It's pretty easy, actually. And that can be pretty overwhelming for people when life's been a lot harder for them than it was for me to assume that they could do it the way I could do it. And so that's probably one of the areas I struggle in the most and have to work on the most. And, um, you know, we have a son right now coming out of a 12-step program uh, treated for addiction. He's had a rough ride. And um, there's a lot of stuff he's learned about himself in the last couple of years through some of the darkest times in his life. And we're very close and we're in touch with each other almost every day, even when he's not living at home. And so to walk that with him and, and be close to him, even when his choices at times have been really tough ones to watch, um, huge growing opportunity for me to learn. You live, as you mentioned, on a hoppy farm, a beautiful farm on the Sandwich Peninsula. You do incredible things there with the land. Now, I wish that Pacific Rim College could claim you as an alumnus we can't but you have studied permaculture uh with us which i'm really excited about what sort of things are you doing with permaculture right now on your property and at large yeah it was kind of to me the term permaculture was new to me about five years ago so i've tried to learn about the systems and the ways that a lot of things are understood from a permaculture perspective and i took a course 
over the course of a year um, with one of the instructors in a class of students who other than me were far more devoted than I was. They were full-time students and I was dropping in once a week. And I learned so much in that process. Um, I think the book that really kicked it off for me was The One Straw Revolution. And when I read that book and learned about how to care for soil better, it really challenged me to rethink everything I'd ever known about agriculture because I'd grown up in a family that always grew our own vegetables and as much food as we could, but often there was fertilizer thrown in as well. For 20 plus years, I've grown my own garden, always organically, tried to understand composting and things like that, but I didn't really understand why I was doing certain things, I just did them. And the permaculture classes that I took from Pacific Rim and being with others who knew far more than I did and traveling to visit farmers in other countries as well who have learned so much and taught me so much. Protecting the soils become like this crazy thing I'm so passionate about. And being able to cover and protect soil so that it is not experience any exposure, exposure or trauma so that it can really meet its potential. Because when I started to do that and take the principles from One Straw Revolution, most of my veggies doubled in size in two years in my garden. And I went from feeling like I had to weed my garden two hours every day for five months a year to having so much time on my hands, I started exploring and competing in triathlons because I had so much time in the morning. I'd get up early, like, I don't have anything to do. I'm going to go ride. I'd get up the next day, I don't have anything to do. I'm going to go swim. And that became like this obsession with me for now. Like I've discovered how much I love running and competing and it used to be all weeding. And so permaculture kind of saved my life <laughs> in that regard. <laughs> what work are you doing with permaculture right now? Um, I'm trying to understand better how to do uh, fruit trees and guilds around fruit trees. That's probably the big thing I've worked on. Last year, I experimented with an area where I had excavated a pond and we have a swimming pond in our backyard. And the soil that had been taken out of the pond was the worst, lowest grade soil on our property because a lot of it was clay. You get down more than a meter, it was just clay. And it had been put to the side of the pond when we'd excavated. And I started to top dress it with leaves and with mulch and with compost, seeing soil start to build up. And with the class from Pacific Rim, we spent a couple, we spent at least a day, maybe two, and we started to put in some, some larger plants like fruit trees and stuff like that, and some kiwi and some hops. And I started interplanting with herbs and all sorts of edibles and things my pollinators, my bees would like. And I've seen soil come on so fast there. And now with drip irrigation and this all under mulch and all these, oh, it's crazy. It's a small horseshoe shaped thing right around my pond that maybe in total is about 12 feet wide and 100 feet long. But it's this bed that's just brimming with life and it has so much in it. And it's in soil that five years ago, a person would have said nothing can ever grow there. And so it's really been a testament to me about learning to build soil by intercropping and diversity and just always mulching. And you're passionate about sharing that with others. In what way are you doing that? Um, I really get excited about educating other people about what I'm learning and never from an expert standpoint, but more of like, can you believe this just happened? <laughs> and I love documenting that. And so about two years ago, I launched a little YouTube channel and a website called Sustainable Stace. And at Sustainable Stace, I tried the first year and a half or so to put out a video every week. I haven't always been faithful to do that, but generally getting out resources um, birds and bees, so chickens and poultry, running an incubator, hatching your own eggs, ha keeping bees, about fruits and berries, and then about growing veg and starting your own plants and saving seeds and mulching and doing raised beds. And then I just did a one-year-long um, 
step-by-step step how to grow your own compact, hyper-productive garden that I call Backyard Abundance, which I'm hoping to put on the market as a sellable product. But Sustainable Stays is free of charge, basically a YouTube channel with about 60 videos on it now. And it's gradually been getting going. And for me, it's exciting. People from different countries texting me and messaging me and asking me questions and uh, learning the things that they're learning and sharing the stuff that I've been learning. Uh, it's great to be part of a community that's growing food and practicing permaculture. Permaculture in its essence breaks down as permanent culture. And it seems to me you've surely uh, walked the talk in creating this beautiful culture within your company, within your family of birth and adopted children, and with the work that you're doing on your farm. I often come to you for advice because I feel like you're such a wealth of, of knowledge and experience. What uh, advice or tips would you potentially give to listeners on cultivating some of those most important things, most important lessons in life that you've come to come to learn? I find that the area I need to work on the most that when I'm paying attention to it reaps the greatest rewards I, I call pace and posture and my my opening comment to that is I do everything poorly when I'm hurried when my pace slows down it's like my heart opens up and my brain actually turns on and I start to listen and so when I have margins in my life where I'm allowing to rest, I'm allowing to pray, I'm allowing to read, I become a better listener. And as one person has said, there's not a lot of difference between listening pe to people and loving people. When people feel heard, they feel appreciated and valued. And so I'm working really hard on my pace and my posture so that the things that I'm doing, though they're wholehearted, aren't done in hurry or in haste. Um, <clears throat> For me, it can be the simple step of I'm in the garden. I don't have a lot of time, but while I'm here, I'm not just going to work. I'm going to start by sitting and observing, and I'm going to make sure while I'm here, I'm barefoot so that I'm like going to impregnate every moment that I'm here, taking in everything that's there so that the senses are fully alive. And my kids kind of chuckle and say, oh, dad, and roll their eyes because I'm one of those guys who's like, we have running water again today. This is amazing. And they're like, dad, stop. And I'm like, no, but really, this is pretty crazy awesome. And I don't, that doesn't get old for me. And so I think it's appreciating the little things and gratitude just sparks so much when I slow down and appreciate what's there. Why did you adopt from Haiti three times? We were entertaining this notion of how we would start out and where we would adopt from. And we really didn't know sort of like a pin the tail on the donkey world map thing. And my wife was attending UVic and um, she brought home a documentary on a VHS tape from the library at UVic. And it was an example in this documentary of numerous attempts on international adoption that had gone sideways, followed by the if you could adopt internationally, this is the way it should be done. And it featured this beautiful woman who still runs the orphanage in Haiti named Gladys Sylvester. And she's Haitian born, American educated, and chose to go back and remain in Haiti to offer hope in situations that often look overwhelming. And she is in the course of her life legacy, 
built a great hospital that has responded to thousands of people's needs over the years and in the aftermath of the earthquake 10 years ago ran nonstop for three years straight with volunteer doctors from all over the world coming in they've done vocational schools run an orphanage and they've worked with critically disabled kids who would often in their society be discarded or just parents being overwhelmed wouldn't know what to do with them and she's created a sense of value for people that often would be overlooked. And the victory that's come from Gladys's life and legacy, this group's called the Foundation for the Children of Haiti, it inspired us so much. We started to meet other families who'd adopted Haitian-born kids who lived in the area where we do. And we said, this could be a great way to start our adoption process. So traveling to Haiti and meeting Gladys and seeing what was taking place has been an incredible experience multiple times and then bringing our kids into an adoptive community where Haitian-born, white parents, this can be normal. <laughs> Outside of some of the influences that you've already mentioned, what resources or events or relationships have had a major impact on your life? Uh, the one that hit me the most was my first day living in the Philippines. Realizing I was going to be there a year. And it felt at that point like I have to stay, but I want to leave. Being overwhelmed by the poverty that was everywhere in the city where I'd been set up to live. And not knowing how I would manage. That for me was completely, I was under-resourced for that. And I had to find a way to respond and it was hard. But what came out of it was in many ways a sense of destiny that came from a life responding to poverty in thoughtful, relationally driven ways. So it was way beyond me. I knew it had to be something God would birth in me, and it feels like it did. I know recently I had the pleasure and honor of introducing you to archery traditional English longbow archery. So cool. Which I know you're really excited <laughs> so cool, about. Yeah. <laughs> what what right now are you really excited about? I just did a recap video for Sustainable Stace on looking back at 2019 and I tried to make it memorable for me and I put in six things, a birthday, bees, a bike, a book, a bow, and abundance. And the birthday was the wells being drilled from the fundraiser in Ethiopia. The bees were a swarm of bees that came my way in the middle of last year that were so plentiful and did so well and had such a great season at our place. The bike was an electric bike that I outfitted with panniers and took my kids camping on Lopez Island and went sightseeing all over with it. So I went from just road biking to having this bike that's just like a cargo van. I just go everywhere with it. So that was really cool. A book called Factfulness by Hans Rosling that's blown my mind and the tools online from gapminder.org that are tied in with factfulness hold in perfect tension the reality that the world's got terrible stuff going on, but generally the world's getting better. And his online resources are amazing to back up the book, and it's just changed my worldview on poverty and how to educate myself and others. The bow was the part that you're getting at, the long bow. Um, I love that experience of being with someone who knows how to masterfully turn an old piece of wood and bring out this amazing piece that has this capacity to do so much and so that was mind-blowing for me and, and you did that you, you carved that bow wasn't that incredible right that all of us got to take this piece of wood 
having never done that before and walk through that journey as a group of guys together and come up with something that even like two days ago, I was like, I got 15 minutes before the sun goes down. I grab my quiver and I run outside and just shoot and I'm hiding behind trees and ducking out from behind my woodshed and <laughs> I'm a little camo guy and I'm just playing in my own world, just firing off a bow and it's super fun. So I don't know where that's going to take me, but it was inspiring just to be part of making something with my hands that had such beauty to it and such history in the fact that it was an old piece of wood from an old tree. And it's going to have this legacy. I don't know what it'll be yet. Yeah. And abundance, abundance, which was that little backyard abundance, small garden, hyper productive project that I did online for sustainable stays that I'm hoping to, to roll out this year. Yeah. Where can listeners learn more about what you're doing and the work you're doing and all of this and everything you mentioned, I'll make sure it goes in the show notes. Oh, wow. Well, if you love coffee or tea and you want a great experience and you live somewhere in Greater Victoria, come out on weekdays to our tasting room at Level Ground and experience coffee firsthand there. If you can get a group of eight or ten people, send me an email and I'll give you a tour. Walk through the facility and meet some of our staff and see what we do. I'm just Stacy at levelground.com. Stacy's with an EY at the end. Uh, you can connect with me on my Sustainable Stays platform, comments on YouTube videos and stuff like that. Maybe you've got stuff that you can show me that I can learn from you that's been wildly successful for you. And I'm trying to practice being curious and learning so that I can just keep on learning more from people. Um, and levelground.com is our website, so there's always information on there about what we're up to, careers of people who are looking for work, and I want to join the team and just what we do and how we do it in general. This has been fun, Stacy. Very much a privilege for me. Thanks, Todd. Yeah, my pleasure. Any parting words before we go? I'm always struck by the fact that when people get together and talk about their triumphs, it can be isolating. And on the contrasting note, when we get together and talk about our vulnerabilities, where we feel a bit overwhelmed, a bit anxious, we create friendship and we create community. And so... I hope that everything that comes through in any parts or pieces people would have listened to today would go, this guy's been overwhelmed a lot and he's learned a lot as he's gone. And I hope that there's a connection and a community building component for you out of the things that I've learned through my struggles. I hope you have been inspired by this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Stacy Tapes. Don't forget to check out his permaculture site, sustainablestace.com. And also, Pacific Rim College's School of Permaculture Design, which offers arguably the world's most comprehensive permaculture program, a 10-month diploma in permaculture design and resilient ecosystems. Also, stay tuned for an upcoming episode with renowned permaculture visionary Mark Lakeman, who on February 22nd and 23rd will be offering at Pacific Rim College a weekend workshop entitled Permaculture, Placemaking, and Planet Repair. Go to PacificRimCollege.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, enjoy a cup of level ground coffee or tea while meditating on how you can up your planetary leadership.